0: to one kneeling down no word came only the wind's song saddening the lips of the grave saints rigid in glass or the dry whisper of unseen wings bats not angels in the high roof was he balked by silence he kneeled long and saw love in a dark crown of thorns blazing and a winter tree golden with fruit of a man's body this is In a Country Church by R.S. Thomas. Well, welcome back to Speaking with Joy, everyone. I am delighted today to have the pleasure of introducing you to a dear friend who is Shanti. Welcome on the show, Shanti.
1: Hello. Um. Lovely to be here.
0: Yes, it's lovely to have you. Shanti and I uh, got to know each other in Oxford, and I am so excited to do this podcast talking about a poet who... I know a bit about and I've always enjoyed and whenever I stumbled upon him but know very little about really on a deeper sense Uh, but Shanti is my resident uh, poetry expert and so today we will have the great fun of talking about R.S. Thomas and themes of looking at landscapes being sort of analogous to how we regard or look at God. Did I say that right Shanti? You did. (laughs) (laughs) So um, give us a bit of an introduction, first of all, to yourself, uh, to what you do, what you study and where you are.
1: Uh, So I am right now in Peterhouse, Cambridge, uh, in my cozy little living room, uh, which is where I'm also doing my PhD at the moment. And I'm looking at ideas of pilgrimage in romantic literature. So uh, a few hundred years earlier than R.S. Thomas, uh, Wordsworth, Coleridge and Jean-Claire are the main poets I look at. But in that or out of that came from originally a, a dissertation I wrote on R.S. Thomas uh, probably about four years ago now at the end of my undergraduate degree, uh, which was looking at ideas of um, habiting and inhabiting landscape Hmm. Uh, in his poetry, kind of ways of attention and looking and then how that leads you up to God. Um, So that got me interested in the idea of pilgrimage as a kind of motif for way of doing that. Um, And now I've taken that on through into Wordsworth and Coleridge and romantic poetry.
0: So Um, it is actually news to me that you did your undergraduate Dissertation on R.S. Thomas. Sorry, that, that's incredibly relevant news. It is incredibly um, that relevant. That we
1: could have mentioned in talking about the fact <laughs> we were going to talk about R.S. Thomas. Um, yes, uh, I, that's that's what I did with Rob McFarlane, the nature writer. That's yes. how I came across originally um, Rob McFarlane and nature. But I came across R.S. about, aged about 12 or 13, really young in a huh. anthology of 20th century poets and really liked him and walked around... I guess this always happens with people you really like, assuming that everyone had read as much R.S. Thomas as they'd read T.S. Eliot or yeah. Larkin, all these other figures. Um, and then it was only when I was at Cambridge that I realised that wasn't quite true. Um, and so I decided to look at him.
0: So at station. with that in mind, knowing that not as many people are kind of aware of R.S. Thomas, who was R.S. Thomas and what did he do? <laughs> Good
1: question. Uh, so he was a poet... Um, often hailed as kind of one of the foremost or um, best British poets of the 20th century. Um, He was born in 1913 in Cardiff and died in 2000 uh, in Seine, which is just off the coast of Wales. Hmm. Um, And for the whole uh, in-between time, really, he was both a priest and a poet. Um, So he trained uh, trained for the priesthood uh, directly uh, university- Seminary, uh, always sticking in Wales, uh, mm. and then had three parishes over the course of his life uh, one in Monavon, which is in kind of central, southish Wales hill farming country. The second one in a place called Eglisfark, which is going a little bit further west in Wales, and where he says that the smell of the farmyard was replaced by the smell of decayed conscience of his parishioners. Oh, wow. We will come back to this, but yeah, he's the man of quite strident opinion. And then the very (laughs) last one is on the very kind of far west tip of Mm. Wales, uh, where you're looking across the island and it's beginning to get much more windier and rugged all the years round and would you Um, say
0: would you say that those various moves were reflected in his poetry
1: yes absolutely so we will come back to this but the poetry that he kind of cut his so he he wrote poetry as a child all the way through and even when he's in seminary he's writing poetry at the same time as studying for the priesthood the poems that he became famous for writing he wrote in his first parish which was very rural a lot of welsh romers and they're, they're all about welsh Country life, really. Mm. Um, So he's very much now the people who read him are either Welsh or Anglican, almost (laughs) exclusively. And so in those poems, he talks a lot about often quite like visceral images of what it's like to be a peasant in Wales Mm. Um, and kind of looking back to a much older tradition of writing that kind of stuff. Mm. So Pindar, Virgil's eclogues, pastoral verse. Hmm. one of the things he gets really into as a child is reading Georgian pastoral verse which again hmm. not many like it's not that popular but mm-hmm. he he kind of turns this into this sort of yeah a lot of poems about about farms and tractors and Welsh peasants anyway so so that's kind of the the image of R.S. Thomas that some people have and hmm. it's also that R.S. Thomas that that in Britain makes it onto our kind of compulsory syllabus for what mm. we have to study. So a few people, even if they haven't read R.S. Thomas, will have maybe read three of those poems, mm. um, which are often fairly unpleasant poems about Welsh peasants. But then when he moves to Eglisfark, which is in the kind of 1960, and from then on, he almost exclusively writes about God. Mm. Um, he says in an interview rather way, God, I think, was there from quite early times <laughs> talking about his poetry. <laughs> but but he really comes to the fore. Um, and then again when he moves to Abadaran, the poems that have been about about God mm. and have been often talking more explicitly about Christ or mm. using analogies, so the poem we talked about at the beginning has this sort of yes. turn towards Christ in the very end of it mm. become increasingly quite stark and quite metaphysical. So one of the things we'll look at a bit later, there's a really strong sense of God being an absence as well as the presence. Mm. Um, And that comes up more and more, this kind of bleaker idea of what God is Mm. or the sort of via negativa idea that it's really impossible to say anything about God. And one of Mm. the things he then increasingly kind of deals with is how do we talk about God at all? So there's Mm. this kind of overall shift from, writing about Welsh countryside to writing about Welsh countryside and God and the role of the priest Mm. kind of in the middle. And then at the end, very much writing about the absence of God Mm. and the bleakness of the landscape that he's in and Mm. whether it's possible to really encounter or come to know God at all.
0: Hmm. Wow. And and that kind of uh, corresponding with the three moves and the three parishes that he was in. It's a fun thing for me to imagine. There's kind of, in my mind, a genealogy of people who uh, were very attached to their, to encountering the countryside or encountering nature and kind of having a relationship with it. Because obviously that's a theme throughout his poetry. Um, mm-hmm. But I love thinking of that, the passing on to Rob, who of course does, I, I feel like I can't call him Rob, Robert McFarlane, who of course is has kind of introduced the romance of walking and to many people, I know Joel loves reading his his book on long walking. To is Shanti it? Grace DeFern, who is, um, who is also someone who is intensely connected to the things that she encounters. So in a way, it kind of seems like this work came out of a genealogy of people who saw and encountered something in nature, and that shaped how you saw and encountered ultimate and fundamental things. Is that true, Shanti, to some extent?
1: Oh, yes, I think so. Um, I like... On The sort of Robert McFarland approach of actually going to particular places. Yes, I've been to all of these three places um, oh. for various events in them, all three parishes, hmm. um, and also particularly spent quite a lot of time off the coast of Amber Darren, his last parish, hmm. um, on an island called Bardsey Island, which R.S. Thomas his parish kind of looks out at mm. uh, and I think officially includes it's kind of included in the parish although it's two and a half miles off the coast which was also a bird observatory and one of the kind of side things of R.S. Thomas Day he really loved was observing birds so he gets really intensely interested in this place uh, mm. which was also a site of pilgrimage mm. all the way from the 6th century to the dissolution of the monasteries. Uh, at one point it was meant to be the most visited pilgrimage site in the British Isles wow. uh, and it's called legendarily in various sources the island of 20,000 saints because rumour has it 20,000 saints were buried in this place wow. um, and I have I wrote quite a lot of this dissertation there, has, hmm. go back there quite a lot and find it quite a a moving and prayerful place hmm. um, and the connection to the R.S. Thomas is one part of that Yeah, um, but it's also a kind of a lineage in terms of thinking about landscape and place that he's very sort of consciously aware of and responding to. He writes um, letters when he's in Aberdaran saying, I begin innumerable poems about Barbs the Island, which is the place, but never seem to finish them. Mm. Uh, There's an unresolved problem. I'm not sure whether it's in the time, in the place or in me.
0: Hmm. I love that. And I think also this, I think often we can encounter poetry about places as though it's just meant to summon up kind of a general appreciation of nature. But these are also tied to specific places. Uh, and that that's that's what it's meant to be. It's not just kind of meant to be a general effusion about the prettiness or the spiritual spiritualness of a place, but that has to be tied to a particular place. And then you felt kind of compelled to enjoy and draw out. And, um,
1: and one of the other things I should probably say I know I'm moving in too many different directions at once, about R.S. Thomas up front as a man Mm -hmm. is that he's also, as well as being an Anglican priest, uh, writing in English Mm -hmm. um, almost exclusively, he has an incredibly strong commitment to Wales, Welsh identity and Welsh nationalism. So that's the other thing he's kind of become known for was famous for and has become known for Um, so he wrote four autobiographies but two of them and the longest of them he wrote in Welsh
0: Hmm. Um, I did not realise that
1: Mm. it's called yeah it's um, the longest one is called Neb which is Welsh for no one Hmm. and it's written in the third person Hmm. which is again giving you a bit of a sense of how how odd he is and so he did various things particularly later in his life but throughout his life in terms of pushing for welsh to be compulsory Mm. in schools which it wasn't when he was growing up it is now Hmm. and building and really being attached to a very strong sense of welsh national identity um, which at times tugs against his involvement in the anglican church which Mm. obviously has its very strong english yeah in england in a way yeah
0: yeah Um, well i suppose that we should actually dive into some of the poems (laughs) all right so let's begin by reading sea watching Um, which I will let you read Shanti.
1: Okay. Uh, So this is taken just to set the scene from a collection called Laboratories of the Spirit in 1975, uh, which is in this period where he's already moved to his last parish, Abadaran, and has turned more to this question of how looking at landscape um, can both reveal God, but also be a way of kind of grasping the absence of God. Mm. at the same time or moving beyond the landscape towards god mm. so see watching gray waters vast is an area of prayer that one enters daily over a period of years i have let my eye rest on them was i waiting for something nothing but that continuous waving that is without meaning occurred. Ah, but a rare bird is rare. It is when one is not looking, at times one is not there, that it comes. You must wear your eyes out, as others their knees. I became the hermit of the rocks, habited with the wind and the mist. There were days so beautiful, the emptiness it might have filled its absence as its presence. Not to be told any more, so single my mind after its long fast, my watching from praying.
0: Hmm. That is really beautiful. It reminds me, I, I don't think that I could even begin to claim as patient a watching as he does. But it reminds me of um, my first year in St. Andrews. I had a a room that looked out over a garden and then a little, kind of gave me a perfect frame of the sea. And I think this is going to sound silly, but having not come from a place where I was used to seeing the sea, I didn't realize how much it changed. Mm. And so I, I started every day, I would take a picture of the exact same spot because every day it would be a different color or a different hue or it would have different kind of textures of waves and Mm -hmm. i love this since he gives a kind of this urgency to sit in front and to see and that like the day that you're not watching will be the day that the thing that he is waiting for the absence that he feels will be filled anyway that's Mm. my very subjective experience of this is that that's what it makes me think of so enlighten us shanti what is there to notice in this poem as it notices
1: Well it's a poem, as you say, I think all about noticing Um, and again just to re-emphasise about the idea that looking at the landscape even in this way and in the way we're talking quite a specific local landscape so you might want to say this is a poem specifically about the fact that his final parish church sits pretty much right up against the beach. It's about as close as I've ever got in the church to just being on the beach. Hmm. Um, Or that the island Barzi is surrounded by the sea and that that daily noticing Hmm. is something about the noticing that he writes elsewhere, people who live on that island or Celtic saints who would have lived in nature would do as part of their experience of Hmm. prayer. But also what it seems to be doing and what seems to make it really interesting to me as a poem Mm -hmm. is the way in which it's using this experience of place to talk actually about being out of place or Mm -hmm. placelessness Mm -hmm. um, and using the experience of watching something as a way of talking about things you can't see or things Mm -hmm. you can't look at Mm -hmm. so dealing with that that fault line between the visible and the invisible Mm -hmm. and between the absence and the presence. So I think what I'd emphasise as the kind of two themes that come out all the way mm. through the poem are these two key words. So it's the absence versus its presence and mm. then not to be told by watching from praying. So how do the ways that when we're we're in prayer, mm. in what way is that move beyond words or move mm. beyond conscious attention? And mm. how is that similar and different to walking in landscape? And I, I think one of the reasons why even though that sounds like quite a simple idea, it's quite radically done here, is because we tend to think about, if we're looking or talking about God in nature, that what that means is some sort of, either some sacramental idea of going out and seeing something that has created God and kind of reminds you of God by analogy. He gives um, you like a
0: very clear line from, I've seen a beautiful hmm. thing, this reflects God's power or majesty or you know creativity and therefore hmm. it brings me into encounter somehow with God.
1: Yeah, or like this, or just a sense of plenitude. This yes. is so beautiful, and this gives me a sense of God's creative power, mm-hmm. or we see that all over the place in kind of lots of really good religious poetry, like Hopkins and you yeah. know But but always this sense of kind of nature as a way towards God precisely because it is so full and because it's mm. so particular um, and because it's so beautiful. Mm. And here I think we have a a way of using it analogously to do the opposite so instead mm. of of having this sort of key of affirmation where we go out looking at the beauty of creation to mm. remind ourselves about god mm. where he's actually saying that sometimes the experience of being in place can be so bare can be so stripped back that it does precisely the opposite it does the the absent mode the via mm. negativa the getting us to the idea that it's impossible to talk about god mm. um, and I think that's something that's, that's quite unusual and quite interesting in terms of thinking mm. about placing landscape and place together with God as this idea that it could also be a, a way into a contemplative practice or a, mm. a meditative practice that has more in common in some ways with kind of traditions of Christian mysticism or mm-hmm. orthodox ways yeah. of thinking about, about God. In terms of going then to the poem mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I'd, I'd emphasize just in terms of how he does that is one of the things if you if you you the listener this is mm-hmm. uh, as well as you joy uh, pull this up Ever you can see that it's incredibly formally quite intricate so the lines jump mm-hmm. in a way you can't always hear when you read it so
0: mm-hmm.
1: just the first two lines grey waters vast as an area of prayer third line that one enters the line breaks are after vast and after prayer Hmm. and they're indented so far in that azan starts almost at the end of vast on the on the page Mm -hmm. there's an awful lot of blank space in this poem Mm -hmm. and that's also something that actually he doesn't do much this is one of the few poems where he does do it and i think you get a in a way that sounds a bit juvenile to write about, but you get this sense of the movement of the sea backwards and forwards because of how active your eyes have to be jumping around.
0: And um, I'm looking at it too. It looks like a tide coming in a little bit too, as you actually, like mm-hmm. the words in the page look like a tide coming in, because it continually moves over to the right until about a third of the way through the poem and then continually starts moving to the left. Um, the <laughs> indentations, you see what I'm saying? So it like goes a little bit more out <sighs> to the right and then eventually recedes. Um, which is like the experience of watching the tide come in. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And it gives so much of a sense of of space and waiting because it's quite slow to read, therefore. Mm-hmm. So was I waiting for something indented all the way across nothing? Hmm. You it builds those pauses into the poem. Hmm. I think something else, in terms of this idea i've been I've been kind of talking about in terms of how it, uses the space of landscape also as a way to gesture towards the absence of place Mm. that comes up is the way in which he he turns ideas of prayer from the very beginning not Mm. just in the end towards a sense of geography or terrain Mm. so it's an area of prayer that one Mm. enters he's kind of right from the beginning he's not only conceiving the place as a mode of prayer but he's conceiving prayer something like an experience of prayer of Mm. of place Mm. it's an area you go into it
0: um Mm. which is different than sometimes we talk about a time of prayer like we'll we'll begin Mm. a a time of prayer now where he's conceiving it in terms of space rather than time
1: Mm. and he he writes elsewhere the right quote in a collection called the echoes return slow which is Mm. also just that title of here, these ideas of echoes coming back, like the tide coming back. You must imagine a waiting that is not impatient because it is timeless. Hmm. And that sense of how can we think about the kind of waiting that we're doing when we're waiting for the tide Hmm. also is something that takes us out of time itself.
0: Hmm. So I think we
1: have a movement both out of time and out of place.
0: Hmm.
1: But at the same time, just to think about so we've talked a bit about kind of ideas of geography or the terrain of the area prayer one enters. Then we move almost immediately into senses of of place, but also again their place senses of no, of time even of time that come back again. So mm. daily over a period of years, hmm. and then similarly with the the rare bird is rare. It's when one is not looking at times, one is not there that it comes. I think that's the that's bit you cited on the very beginning, and I think one of the reasons those lines, they always get me, is that sense of not looking, not there. But that seems to be playing against such a, a strong sense of actually straining your eyes out. So on the, on the one hand, he seems to be saying, this happens when you're not looking for it, so just chill out in a way you don't need to look like just chill out relax and then on the other hand immediately afterwards in what seems kind of a complete contradiction he says you must wear your eyes out Hmm. so it's when you're not looking it comes but you must wear your eyes out Hmm. and i think again if we're if we're looking at this as a poem in a in a kind of christian or specifically in his case anglican context that's trying to talk more about prayer as an experience Hmm. that sense of both you need to be in a habit and the routine, and you need to do it a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of mystical and inexpressible, and you don't know when it will go right. And sometimes it's it a really come, interesting tension. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think that's very easily not easily experienced, but that there is that experience in life too. Of you know, you, you we cultivate these routines and these habits of of prayer, but then there are moments where you will be washing the dishes that will feel the most profoundly spiritual, and that something will come to you, or that you'll have a prayer answered. So there's a little bit of a, a feeling mm-hmm. of that. It reminds me, and I'm just going to in- intersperse this momentarily. Of um, last yes. week, in the theology course that I'm tutoring for, we talked about metaphors for salvation that are used in the New Testament, and there's you know all of these, you know, having your debt paid or having being washed, being healed, uh, and one of them that comes up a lot is sight or like sight or blindness, and so that a salvation mm-hmm. is, it's not even seeing. It's like being able to be aware of something that was present that you could not perceive before. And uh, we were chatting about it in our tutorial. And one of the students, which I thought was rather profound, she, we were talking about which ones we found the most compelling. And she was like, I like this one because there is this sense that we all have, or that I have, of looking and looking intensely and feeling that no matter how hard I look, there is something that I'm not seeing so I think that's somewhat analogous also to the attention of prayer, um, that we we put ourselves in a position where we can see the rare bird, but then the, ultimately um, that space of attention will only be rewarded as a gift, that it'll come kind of at these unexpected moments.
1: One more thing to emphasize there before we move on is also the move of the might-have towards the end. There were days so beautiful, the emptiness it might have filled. Mm-hmm. I think that that's another aspect that always catches me, the the idea of the beauty of the emptiness, Mm. and the something that's both carving out the emptiness and filling it up with Mm. the beauty. And in terms of thinking about the the waiting and the attention, I was uh, at a seminar about uh, Plotinus this morning, because um, Coleridge reads a lot of Plotinus. And I think there's a very similar moment, if you'll forgive me, going on the (laughs) sidetrack for a second, um, which is, is again, talking about this idea of sort of staying and contemplating and awaiting something. So one must not chase after it, and it here is be one, God, in a kind of platonic sense. So one must chase after it, but wait quietly till it appears, preparing oneself to contemplate it, as the eye awaits the rising of the sun. And the sun rising over the horizon gives itself to the eyes to see.
0: Mm. Gives itself. I love that.
1: Mm. Yes. The one more thing I wanted to say about this before we perhaps move on to another poem, which I think ties in particularly nicely to what you're saying in terms of New Testament ideas of salvation as well, because it it pulls up precisely some of those images and links them to ideas of sight, Um, just on sea watching. Very quickly, to take it into that last stanza, is some of the ways in which he's using the language of Mm. being a hermit, habiting Mm. these ideas, that kind of pun on habit, both as Mm. the monk's habits and habits of behaviour, to describe the way he's in the landscape, habited with the wind and the mist. And then also, the, the one more comment I'd make in terms of language is thinking about what that it is doing towards the end. There were days so beautiful, the emptiness it might have filled. Its mm. absence was as its presence, not to be told anymore. So single my mind after its long fast, my watching from praying.
0: Mm. And that
1: what that it means is slightly changing every time. Mm. So you think that at first it's the, the beautiful, and then you think it's the, the absence, and then you think it's the, the mind itself, and mm-hmm. then it, hopefully towards the very end, the way he's suspending the lines comes to this idea of how indistinguishable watching and praying Hmm. are. And I I think there's something just to re-emphasise about the way in which all the way from when it is when one is not looking at times, one is not there, that it comes. Hmm. He is using the specific things he can do because he's writing a poem because he's using the lines on the page and because he can be Mm. both very precise about the language he chooses and very ambiguous, Mm. that he, through the experience of reading the poem, is not only saying something about what it's like to look at landscape or what it's like to be in prayer, but he's sort of making it happen for Mm. us Mm -hmm. at the same time as we read the poem. Mm.
0: Yes, helping us to watch and wait and experience that with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shall we go to the next poem is it bright field
1: bright field i was going to say if you don't mind reading this one
0: okay i will read it i have seen the sun break through to illuminate a small field for a while and gone my way and forgotten it but that was the pearl of great price the one field that had treasure in it i realize now that i must give all that i have to possess it Life is not hurrying on to receding future, nor hankering after an imagined past. It is the turning aside like Moses to the miracle of the lit bush, to a brightness that seemed as transitory as your youth once, but is the eternity that awaits you. Thank you. I think this is actually one of the first poems I read by him originally. And I don't remember where, I think it might have been in an Advent, I'm not sure why it was to that, but an Advent reading.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> it's one of the ones that tends to be anthologised the most, it's also one of the ones that tends to crop up in sermons quite mm. often. Mm, really? Um, mm. As, uh, although, it's brief, brief aside, but while I'm thinking about sermons, I meant to say about the... Um, my encounter, my first proper encounter with sea watching in particular, because it wasn't one of my first favourite poems of R.S. Thomas's, was Rowan Williams gave a sermon in Eglis Thomas's second um, second parish, just on sea watching for about 40 minutes, although in the course of a, of a mass, um, with no notes, just on the poem sea watching, which was quite extraordinary. I think there are only about 20 of us there. Wow. Um, and also, it was just a, a normal Sunday service, but integrated into an R.S. Thomas festival. Um,
0: wow. But I'll, I just wanted
1: to briefly conjure yeah, up the yeah. image of, of, uh, of Rowan Williams. Also speaking in an entirely black church, because R.S. Thomas decided when he moved to that parish that he would paint all the pews black. Wow. And also that he would pull up the like carpet to reveal the dark grey slate. Um,
0: it seems like there's a lot of um, absence in that yes. as well. there really is. I just say for people who may not know this, forty minutes for an Anglican homily is really something. That's like
1: really something. That, it's right, that's like yeah.
0: Southern Baptist territory.
1: Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Going back to um, to the bright field, yes. um, I think one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up and put it next to sea watching mm-hmm. is because. The one of the ways it comes to us in the collection it's also in this collection, Laboratories of the Spirit, from 1975. And yet it's often read as kind of a real, I don't know what's the word, salvo, of this idea of looking at nature, being a way into looking at God, but where what nature is giving us is this plenteousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but it comes next to see watching where what nature is giving us is this absence. Mm-hmm. And I think thinking about the two of them together reveals quite a kind of, complex and nuanced understanding of the way in which looking itself is a form of watching and praying mm. stand together. And also because you get again, as you helpfully sort of uh, premiered us, this idea that light itself or the visible itself or sun itself is not just the medium through which we look, but is a, is a really powerful symbol, analogy for what is happening Mm. in the world god's acting in the world well and it's Um, the
0: it's the metaphor in um lewis's little essay on light in a tool shed that it's the thing that you can't see if you're inside of it you can't see it um you can only see it if you're outside of it which also has that sense of kind of being uh the presence and absence that you can only perceive it when being baptized in it but then you can't actually see it. Anyway, this is my very (laughs) not helpful explanation, but like if you see a stream of light, you can see it as a stream of light if you are outside of it, if you're not communing with it. Whereas if you are inside of it and seeing by it, you may strain your eyes all that you can, but you won't be able to see the stream of light unless you're outside of it. So there's that sense of being able to perceive it, being based to some extent on whether or not you are communing or inside of it, which I think could be a useful... Kind of picture of what these two poems are doing in some sense, maybe. <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
1: Yeah. Another reason I really like this poem is because, um, and I think it's popular in sermons, uh, because it's taking quite a few images from, or bits from scripture, but linking them together in interesting ways. So you've mm. got the pearl of great price, Matthew Gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the uh, that sense of I must give all I have to possess it mm. as well. And then you've got Moses and the lit bush. But mm-hmm. they're all linked together by these sort of ideas of luminescence, ideas of giving oneself up
0: mm-hmm. and ideas
1: of looking and participating in something.
0: Mm. Um, and then that's tied in also with time again, right? With mm. Life is not hurrying on to a receding future, nor hankering after an imagined past. It is turning aside. So it's almost like uh, saying the life is a thing that you happens when you turn away from the rushing onwards or looking behind of time.
1: Yes, exactly. And and a lot of critics of ours, particularly a guy called Christopher Morgan in this book about, I think it's called Identity, Deity, and environment, like something that's very much about how we think about God and place, mm-hmm. talks about this poem as a, an example or a credo of the sort of being in the present philosophy. Mm-hmm. So what you're trying to do is always be as much in the present as you can, turn aside into the present. Mm. Um, but I, I've always, one of the things that's really interesting about it is the way that it pulls into that present, both the future and the past Mm. so it's not only saying we need to be aware of what's happening right now but it's also saying in a way what's happening now is comprised of what's happening in the past and what's happening in the future yeah but that that in itself is a sense of eternity Mm. and i think that comes through also in in the scripture so the the idea that this sort of typological idea that thinking about moses and the lip bush is also a way of thinking about the experience of R.S. Thomas standing in a field in Wales now, Hmm. or thinking about the gospel illuminates Moses. There's a lot of this sort of typological way of thinking about how revelation happens in time. Well, even in the Uh, fact
0: that he's describing this experience, which is meant to be him turning aside from the past and the future, in the language of something that has happened in the past. Yes. Yeah.
1: And I think that comes particularly in the way that he uses the lit bush analogy to come into a sense of reconfiguring the transitory or the kind of present moment into eternity. So a brightness that seemed as transitory as your you once, but it's the eternity that awaits you. Hmm. We've got the same idea coming back of of waiting for something, which is also something which is given hmm. to us rather yeah. than something we go we go and seek. These two images, both the lit bush and the, the pearl of great price, are one of the things rs thomas does a lot in terms of thinking about how you might read his poetry is repeat stuff mm. um, so my dissertation on rs thomas and habit um which had some like some complexity to it but a lot of it was just like <laughs> look how repetitive rs thomas is about everything yeah. um uh and and these are two of his things that he repeats everywhere um, really? and one one example of the way they come up again i wanted to bring up was a. Uh, a prose essay called The Mountains, which Mm. has no theological content. It's the description purely of climbing the mountains in Snowdon, uh, so a different bit of Wales again, and going back down the mountain. Mm. But in that he interweaves really interestingly a lot of kind of subtle scriptural overtones or Mm. a lot of Kierkegaard as well. And he uses this um, same image, he talks a is to be in touch with Eden that hmm. high field green is an emerald which is the precious stone that a man sells all his goods to possess hmm. um, and it. there you have the same image again but also with Eden thrown in and then the emerald this time rather than the pearl and he also when he's going up to the field in that essay he talks about rock garden which is which suddenly gets lit up he says suddenly the sun is switched on <laughs> um
0: We've all had that experience, though, when the clouds part and it feels like it is.
1: (laughs) Mm. And he also talks about a monastery of glass in which each blade of glass... I inhabit a monastery of glass. Some days each blade of grass shines. Some days there is mist in a hurry. And it's that... I think it ties very nicely to what you were saying about inhabiting light from the inside versus the outside that Mm -hmm. I inhabited a monastery of glass, I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about the fracturing of light and the visible, Mm. also in ways that are quite contemplative.
0: Mm.
1: And some of the ways in which light is not only the experience of inhabiting the visible, but also both a figure and actually the experience of inhabiting the invisible as well. Yeah. And I'm not sure I've gone slightly slightly off on one there. No, no.
0: I mean, the, I think this is just becoming joy and shanty, enjoying uh, images that R.S. Thomas presents unto us. <laughs> but I was going to say, um, from my very from my very limited knowledge of R.S. Thomas, I noticed we read, um, so we chose the opening poem, of course, was in a country church. Uh, but I noticed in that the similarity with the coming when he has this this ending bit where it talks about, I saw a dark crown of thorns blazing and a winter tree golden with the fruit of a man's body, and it reminded me a bit of the ending of the Coming, where he says, where he talks about the vanished April to return its crossed boughs, uh, and then it talks about Christ like returning to this to this barren tree, from a winter landscape, and I, I love seeing when there's phrases or ideas or images that people return to over and over again in their lives. To clarify or that become that kind of gain these meanings and become more and more meaningful them throughout So whether it's the Pearl of Great Price or mm. the Winter Tree that then blossoms with Christ's body like uh, it's just an interesting thing to see develop over mm. his his poetry
1: and another sort of Irish oh, Thomas image I know and love mm-hmm. um, is thinking about the way in which he then uses the bush sometimes to become the cross mm. and I'm thinking in particular of a prose essay which is called uh, a thicket in Lynn, where he uh, again to emphasize the thing that like r s Thomas really loved was in fact not always writing about poetry or talking about poetry or writing about God or talking about God, but it was mostly just watching birds <laughs> <laughs> but he watched uh a load of gold quests, so mm-hmm. they're like the really tiny you know golf i guess birds land on the tree and it reminds him of the burning bush
0: mm. uh, and then
1: they take off again, uh and it reminds him of kind of. The procession out of the cross, what Christ is doing on the cross, huh. being revealed in the whole world.
0: That's um, something I have never. That's that. Those are two images in my mind. I've never connected the burning bush with the cross, but of course that mm. makes sense because in some senses, because they're both. You know, often the cross is is called the tree, right? And they're both trees that signify God's not signify, they are moments in which people encountered God's presence most intensely, where God reveals Mm. himself um, in these kind of moments of disclosure, of self-disclosure. But also, Mm -hmm. and I think this kind of ties back in, they are almost contrasting images of absence and presence. Like the burning bush is this presence, and the cross is, while Christ is on it, it's also meant to be kind of this experience of loss or departure.
1: And the other image, if you're listening to this and you want to go and seek out particular kind of images that recur in R.S. Thomas's poetry that comes up a lot is the specific phrase, which is very R.S. Thomas, I don't think many people use it as much or certain, yeah, not as much of the untenanted cross. He keeps coming back to looking at images of of the untenanted cross, the cross that is absent or immediately after Mm. Jesus has left the cross. Mm. Um, And that's also often it comes up in I'm thinking of a, there's another poem called In Church, Mm. um, which ends, it's very similar to In a Country Church in that it's someone kneeling down in a church in silence. Mm. Um, And it has the same image of the bats resume their business. Mm. Um, And it says, often I try to analyse the quality of its silences. This is In Church. Mm. Is this where God hides from my searching? Mm. I stop to listen after the few people have gone the air recomposing itself for vigil but then towards the end it says after talking out the back and various kind of the shadows and the mm. uneasiness of the pews has ended there's no other sound in the darkness but the sound of a man breathing mm. testing his faith on emptiness nailing his questions one by one to an untenanted cross oh um, wow and that's that's only one example among many but this idea that the Untenanted cross sometimes is a kind of a figure for the beginning of reflection, so that mm. emptiness that we sort to of be watching, which becomes presence as well, or becomes mm. kind of mystical via negativa, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's just a stark challenge, and um, the relationship between R. S. Thomas and God is a kind of Job-like or Jacob wrestling mm. with the angels-like, nailing stuff on the cross, and how that's complicity as well.
0: Mm. Wow, that is beautiful. I want to sit with that poem for a long time. Um, well, I suppose that Shanti and I both have, you have more Plotinus to read, I suppose? Or is it Bunyan? I do. Is it Bunyan is or, Plotinus? It Bunyan or it
1: Plotinus? What I have to do, actually, is I have to, I'm giving a talk on Saturday on courage, which is meant to be only ten minutes, and I have <laughs> a 7,500 word paper that I'm well, basing it on to cut into ten minutes, which... If you've been listening to this podcast, you may be able to tell. We'll be a challenge. <laughs> um, so uh, so that's what I'm doing. But that comes via Coleridge, via Plotinus, and ideas of colour, which in a way comes back to these ideas of, of light and the visible.
0: Mm. Well, and I must go read about the Pythagorean theory of music and whether or not it can disclose the divine to us. Um And, <laughs> and have to clean up that, after... That- that comes up in Plotinus, I yes. would say. No, I actually know this because Plotinus has come up in my reading as well. So anyone who's listening <laughs> This is what it is like to do a PhD. But all this is to say I must we must go our various ways. But Yes. Um Are there any things that y- your final thought or a final poem you should you would tell everyone to go read of R. S. Thomas's that we haven't touched on at all?
1: I would say can we either strongly recommend or read, but if not strongly recommend uh, a poem called The Musician, which is ties on this end, the very last ideas we've been talking about in terms of Christ uh, and the crucifixion and the resurrection, um, but it figures the image of Christ on the cross in terms of music, going back to mm. your Pythagoras and music, uh, and a violinist, and it has in particular these lines, so it must have been on Calvary, in the fiercer light of the thorns' halo, the man standing by, and that one figure, the hands bleeding, the mind bruised but calm, making such music as lives still, and no one daring to interrupt, because it was himself that he played, and closer than all of them, the god listened. Uh, So that's from a poem called The Musician, I'd say, with the opening as well, which situates that image in the context of a violinist playing on his instrument. Hmm.
0: Uh,
1: And think about how art is similar and is different to the divine.
0: What a beautiful thought to end on. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining me, Shanti, and um, thank you everyone for listening. I will put up the show notes for this and various, the best collections of poetry, which I shall tell Shanti to send me and recommend to you all. Um, And I hope that you will join me next week for what will probably be the final episode in this season of Speaking with Joy. Thank you once more, Shanti. It was so fun to have you. Thank
1: you so much.